that Paul had raised in chapter 1. If you think back to a couple weeks ago when we did the first chapter, Paul starts by reminding Timothy of the power of faith. Uh, faith that's demonstrated uh, in his mother and grandmother, which uh, is a good reminder of the spiritual importance of mothers and grandmothers on this Mother's Day. Um, and that God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So he's contrasting um, the spirit of power uh, with this need to um, overcome the timidity that Timothy seems to possess and the kind of uh, ways that people were demonstrating um, their shame of the gospel or their shame at the very least of being associated with the apostle Paul. And so that's why that kind of repeated theme of the first chapter is do not be ashamed. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. Um, Anisphorus is not ashamed to associate with Paul and to diligently seek Paul out even though Paul was a prisoner in a foreign city and that Timothy is not to be ashamed either. Um, so this emphasis on uh, preparing to suffer for the cause of Christ uh, is a theme that we saw continued last week when we started chapter 2. And, uh, and the, the key word um, that kept coming up last week is the idea of endurance. And he starts off this concept of endurance in chapter 2 with those three pictures um, or uh, metaphors of a, of a soldier, of an athlete, of a farmer. Um, and how these analogies don't, uh, Paul doesn't use them here in quite the way we might expect, um, which is why he gives us that uh, nice little injunction after them, think over what I say. Um, it's not a typical use, but it's an emphasis on um, persisting in one's labors, not to be distracted, um, not to take shortcuts, um, to look for the reward um, uh, at the end of these labors. We also saw Paul putting forward um, examples of what endurance of suffering looks like. First, um, using himself, talking about how um, uh, you know, his, how he's bound in chains as a criminal but the word of God is not bound. You know, he's suffering for the sake of the gospel, but he's, he's glad to be doing it because it leads to the advance of that gospel. Um, so not only is Paul himself an example of this endurance and suffering, Christ is the ultimate example of um, his continuing faithfulness. And indeed, with this uh, um, kind of poem or hymn that he ended this section with emphasizes Christ's faithfulness. Um, even when we are faithless, uh, Christ remains faithful. Uh, Christ cannot abandon us because his death gives us life. And Paul reminds us uh, that um, for Christ to deny us would be to deny his very self. Therefore, we should not deny Christ by our words or actions, but have the comfort that Christ will remain faithful to us even in those moments in which we are faithless. So today we're going to pick up um, in chapter 2. Um, he's, Paul kind of changes gears a little bit in, in verse 14, um, presenting, just as we've seen in the other pastoral epistles, this contrast between the true faithful minister of God's word and these false teachers um, who are leading people astray into ungodliness, um, who are presenting an other message 
uh, instead of the message of Jesus Christ. So we get, once again, this picture, um, starting in verse 14, of what a true gospel minister should look like in the honorable service to God's household. Um, so even though we're going to focus uh, our discussion on verse four, verses 14 forward, I'm going to start our reading with verse 8, um, because verse 8 uh, um, you know, starts with this injunction to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, and as we'll see in the second half of the chapter, part of what the false teachers are presenting are a different understanding of what resurrection is. So just to sort of keep this theme of resurrection uh, I'm going to start in, in verse 8. So let me read for us 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8 through the end of the chapter. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's go to him and ask him to proclaim it in our hearts and minds as we study it this morning. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for how you've revealed yourself to us uh, in the words of your law that you uh, gave through your servant Moses. 
through the words of your prophets who call the people back uh, from their sinful ways to return to um, their uh, first love, to return to their covenant obligations to their God. And we thank you for uh, revealing your word through your apostles to uh, give instruction to your church and how it should uh, minister to one another and how it should witness to the world. And we thank you for, even in this letter of Paul to Timothy, how we see that faithful instruction. But most of all, we thank you for the revelation of your word in your son, Jesus Christ, and his uh, appearance, um, that the very God of very God would take on human flesh and dwell among us, to come not as a um, one in a position of authority, um, in, of earthly authority, uh, to be served by others, but who came to serve, who came to uh, establish his kingdom by uh, sacrificing himself for us, to make uh, people uh, for himself by dying for them and by rising to new life, and that we have new life in him, and we uh, look and expectant hope of that eternal life with our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would help us focus on that word of truth, Jesus Christ, um, even as we study the words of Paul this morning. Help us to focus on the gospel, to focus on your eternal truths, and not to um, be led astray, uh, not to, um, to quibble over words, but to seek uh, the deep truths of uh, our almighty gospel um, uh, revealed to us in Jesus Christ, that we would focus our eyes on him and what he's done for us uh, and keep that in mind uh, as we serve one another and seek to proclaim that word of truth to one another. Give us your spirit, for without your spirit, uh, we would surely be led into error. But by the indwelling of your spirit, uh, that spirit will guide us into all truth, and particularly uh, guide us into understanding who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us and the glorious hope we have in and through him. Guide us by your spirit to show us Jesus, uh, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so again, this uh, latter part of chapter 2 um, focuses on this kind of comparison between what a true uh, servant of the gospel looks like um, uh, and what's different uh, from these other ministers um, that are uh, corrupting the church. So, uh, so my first question for us to think about is what distinguishes rightly handling the word of truth from irreverent babble? Um, you know, what does rightly handling the word of truth look like? And how is that different from the irreverent babble um, or this uh, quarrelsome talk that's, that's useless, as Paul calls it here? Um, or another way to think about it is what qualities separate a Timothy or a Paul from a Hymenaeus or a Philetus? 
everybody's jumping to speak at once. <laughs> Chris. Yeah, and that injunction at verse 14, remind them of these things. Um, you know, that these things, I think, goes is, is why I went back to verse 8. To, you know, what's he trying to remind them of? These things, that, that who Jesus Christ is, this one who uh, was raised from the dead and, and, and in whom we have this uh, hope of eternal life. Um, so, uh, yeah, what uh, the... Um, uh, rightly dividing the word of truth, um, and there's, it's an interesting word. It's like a word for cut there, um, you know. So this this rightly um, 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 ministering of the word of truth uh, means focusing on that center. Like it, you know, as you're cutting it, <laughs> to to not like you know like um, sometimes with with students. Like, they'll, like, talk all around. <laughs> like, I'm like, no. <laughs> you know, like, you're missing what's in the middle. <laughs> it's like they're nibbling around the edges of something. And it's like, well, you know, those edges are good. But, you know, the real truth of what whoever we're reading at that moment is, is here. Um, and so to, you know, focus on that, that, that center, and the center is Jesus Christ. Yeah, Linda. Yeah, and I love how you frame that because there, there is this way we can, we can go awry in kind of two directions. Um, the way I, um, uh, Ligon Duncan, um, when I was in seminary, used to talk about it's like a road with a ditch on either side. You can end up on either ditch <laughs> if you get off that, that straight way. Um, and again, this kind of word of like dividing is, is some, or cutting is, is sometimes used of a road that you, know, you want to cut a straight path. And if you get off that path, you know, you can fall into um, you know, being over quarrelsome about tangential matters um, or, you know, be really focused on, you know, policing this behavior or that behavior and miss the heart of the gospel. Or, as you say, you can get off on the other um, and, and be all kind of, you know, well, you know, <laughs> You, you can gut the gospel, um, and as we'll see, you know, um, you know, with this, when we get into the specifics of what Hymenaeus and Philetus uh, are, are teaching here, you know, to, to gut the resurrection, to, to sort of, um, which, you know, um, as we think, as I was thinking about this passage in re relation to, to modern liberal Christianity, this denial of bodily resurrection is, is one of those, those truths that, well, you know, maybe it's just, something else um, and you know we can babble about um, you know this kind of amorphous um, amoeba like gospel message rather than focus no there's a core truth here that Jesus Christ died and was bodily raised from the dead and that is where our hope 
lies. Ronnie, you had your hand. Yeah, <laughs> or, or yeah, the way you can make it, you know, worse. <laughs> like the more, like you get stuck in the ditch. Like, I, and I have been stuck in ditches before. Um, uh, uh, I, I started driving um, when I was fourteen, <laughs> and um, and uh, I used to drive this my my and I was I was. Um, aided and abetted in my illegal driving by my high school, which um, would toss me the keys of the high school's old beat-up truck. And so I learned to drive in this old beat-up column shift truck. It was great. I wish I had it for Ann Reese and Steven, believe me. <laughs> um, and, uh, but uh, in driving this truck, um, I ended up in a few ditches. <laughs> and I often, um, as if you've ever ended up in a ditch, made it worse by like spinning the tires and it just sort of like further loosened the material, like further, uh, um, you know, getting, you know, deepening the hole I was in. And it's that idea that, you know, we, you know once we start quibbling about words or once we start babbling about them, you know, it, it just kind of takes on a momentum of its own. Like we can't stop. And, and rather than helping us, um, building us up in faith, it's, it's deepening us in this hole. It's spreading this infection. And, um, you know, the, the idea of gangrene here, um, which remember in, in his age, you know, get, to respond to gangrene would be to amputate the limb. Like, you know, so it's not like, oh, you can just scrub it off a little and you'll be, you'll, you'll be good. Um, you, know, you know, clean out the, the nasty pus. And, sorry, I swear. Um, and the, the limb will heal. No, because you know, once the infection takes root, it's going to spread. And it, it takes radical measures to, to heal, um, um, to, to, to prevent the spread of that infection. And, you know, for thousands of years, that meant amputating the limb. Um, rather than suffering this horrible death from the infection. And that's the kind of picture here of, you know, uh, and as we think about the quibbling of words, it's not, he's not talking about just small matters. Like, it's not just like, oh, well, you know, there's some minor things. No, he's talking about, um, you know, major issues that get to the heart or detract from the heart of the gospel um, that, that, change the, the focus of the church, that swerve the church into a fundamentally different direction um, and, and miss that straight path of the gospel. So it's not just sort of, you know, um, uh, you know splitting of hairs. It's, it's a way of doing it that um, fundamentally deviates from the gospel of Jesus Christ in a harmful, destructive way. Others about, so as we think about this, this comparison uh, um, and uh, you know, what does it mean to rightfully divide the word of truth versus babble or being quarrelsome? Yeah, Bill. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I, I like the way you use distort because, again, as, as Linda said, there are people who would you know, absolutely agree that, yeah, it's the Bible is, is, you know, that's the word of truth and that's, you know, all we should focus on. And nevertheless, they can still distort it or twist the word of, or the words of truth. You know, they can pervert it. Um, I like the way William Hendrickson said uh, this about um, the man who handles the word of truth properly does not change, pervert, mutilate, or distort it. Neither does he use it with wrong purpose in mind. On the contrary, he prayerfully interprets scripture in light of scripture. He courageously yet lovingly applies its glorious meaning to concrete conditions and circumstances, doing this for the glory of God, the conversion of sinners, and the edification of believers. Um, and I, I found that really helpful because, you know, if we think about quarrelsome, at least for me, like, um, you know, when I get, I'm a horrible debater, but when I get into a quarrel, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a berry, which means I'm highly, highly, highly competitive, <laughs> and which means I, I'm in to win. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, Dana hasn't arrived yet. You can ask her why she stopped playing backgammon with me. <laughs> um, um, but, and, and, you know, sometimes, you know, it, when I'm dealing with more serious matters, like I'm in a deep discussion with someone, I can fall into the trap of, of, of missing the goal of the conversation, which is to show them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I can be led into thinking that the goal of the conversation is to win. <laughs> to win the argument. And I, I think um, as I, I grow in, in, in the faith and I'm in churches more, I think that's often uh, sometimes our difficulty. Like we're so interested in winning an argument or, or defending a particular truth that we lose sight of why we're doing it. <laughs> you know, we lose sight of what the true motivation should be. And I like how Hendrickson says this, you know, you know, we're doing it for the glory of God, the conversion of sinners, and the edification of believers. We're not doing it to win the argument or to demonstrate how, you know, again, problem I run into, to demonstrate how I'm smarter um, or, you know, that um, I understand this better. Uh, you know, this, these are all kind of traps I think we can fall into. And we miss what the purpose of of preaching the gospel is. It's not to win arguments. It's not to prove someone else is, is wrong. The, the purpose is the glory of God, the conversion of sinners, and the edification of believers. And when we start doing these other things, that's when we start to, to stray into being quarrelsome. Um, and instead of um, um, uh, being a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth or rightly cutting or dividing the word of truth. Yeah, Chris. To win. <laughs>
Yeah, and it's that, you know, Paul is, is calling Timothy back and, and using Timothy to call other ministers of the gospel back to this core truth. And as we think, again, about this particular context, these troubles that the church is facing here, these aren't external difficulties. And I think that's something we really need to keep in mind. Um, you know, very much like, like uh, Linda said earlier, these are troubles within the church, and it's people in the church can go awry in different directions. So, so it's in this cultural context of winning and that outside culture has infected the church within, um, where people within the church forget about what the point <laughs> of, of the, the gospel is. Um, you know, the, the Bible's not, not there to, you know, to set up propositions for us to have a good debate with one another. And, you know, it's there to lead us to Jesus Christ, um, to convert us, to edify us, and to help us um, do what we're going to do in the next hour to, to worship. Um, you know, that's what it's there for. And if we start using it for something else um, or some other purpose, whether, you know, as we've seen in the pastoral epistles, some people are using it for their personal gain. Um, some people are using it to boost their self-esteem, which again, this quarreling over words, I, I think is a way we see that frequently to sort of boost um, you know, a person's own prestige within the church, rather than doing it for what the, the purpose that Paul is charging Timothy to in this chapter. Good. Other things about this comparison? Yeah, Mike. Yeah, uh, and I think, you know, the history of the, the church shows how that happens. Um, and again, to go back to, to Linda's example, you can see how that happens on both sides. Like people who argue, you know, quibble so much about something, like, you know, arguments about, you know, how many angels can fit on the head of a pen. <laughs> um, or, you know, um, debates about, you know, uh, like we see with the the Sadducees, like we, you know, will there be marriage? You know, you know that's a question about the resurrection. Like, well, you know, if a guy had seven wives, you know, who's he going to be married to in heaven? You know, trying, you know, that kind of, you know, taking the word and all right, we're going to take it seriously. And if this is what you mean, then you know that seems like nonsense. Or um, the other way, you know, again, beginning part of the 20th century or end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century in the United States, um, people are like, wow, man, this, this bodily resurrection thing, that is really hard. You know, in our empirical age, 
that's really hard to stomach. And so maybe the, it means something else, you know. So maybe we can talk about the resurrection and sort of like it's a spiritual renewal um, or it's something else. But yeah, it's the way that, you know, you can start with trying to make distinctions one way or another. And as you keep down that path, you're going to end up seriously distorting the word of truth. Um, and which is why, you know, um, as he's talking about, you know, these needless quarrels, um, this irreverent babble, um, he's not just talking about, you know, hair splitting. He's talking about things that fundamentally get at the heart of the gospel. Serious, as you said, serious heresy. Um, and, you know, they might, you know, say it's about semantics. Well, what I think what resurrection means is something else. Um, but by their you know, semantic debate over what words mean, words mean, they are fundamentally gutting the gospel of its, its core truth. And one of those core truths, as we, just as we saw it in this prior passage, this saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. Like, it is a core truth, you know, that our hope lies in, in our sin, dying in, in Christ's death, and our life being raised up with him. Yeah, Tim. It's, it's, it, so uh, that's a good question. So Paul uses resurrection in, in two ways. Um, so he uses it to either refer back to Christ's resurrection or he'll use it to refer to a future resurrection that's our bodily resurrection. So, you know, um, what's a, a good place of this to sort of think of how Paul uses the resurrection. Flip with me to um, 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15. Um, and uh, I'll try not to cry because I marked out parts of this I read at my father-in-law's funeral. Um, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So um, and there's circulating in this era um, various forms of denying the resurrection, particularly the bodily nature of it. Um, so in this case, you know, that some are saying that the resurrection has already happened. Most people take this to be a way of spiritualizing the resurrection. Sort of, well, that just means, 
our resurrection. Yeah, that, that I, or even Christ's resurrection. That it's a spiritual thing. Um, that, and it, it um, that, you know, Chris mentioned earlier the kind of Greek cultural context. You know, in this Greek cultural context, um, there's a strong dualism that material things bad, spiritual things good. And so this message um, it, of rejecting the bodily resurrection by saying a spiritual resurrection has happened already, then they're, they're missing the, you know, this fundamental truth. They're misrepresenting not just the resurrection, but fundamental truths about matter. You know? um, and we saw that Paul um, have to um, combat this um, uh, denigration of God's good creation in 1 Timothy chapter 4, where people were saying, ah, yeah, you know, marriage is an evil, or sex is an evil material thing and should be avoided. And he's like, no, marriage is good. <laughs> God made it. <laughs> you know, it, it existed before the fall. And you can't call things that God calls good evil. Um, and it's that um, understanding of, again, taking a truth. All right, yeah, there, we believe the resurrection but it's not a bodily resurrection because we know that dead people don't rise. Um, you, know, you know, that's what makes zombie TV shows and films fun because we know they really can't happen. <laughs> you know, you know, it's, we know empirically that dead is dead and that you know, there can't be new life. Um, and so therefore, you know, it must mean something else. Um, it, it must mean a spiritual resurrection that's already taken place. Um, so in this affirming that a resurrection has already happened, um, the, the implication uh, seems to be that they're denying a future bodily resurrection. Does that make sense? Um, other things about you know, this quibble, because uh, it is, he doesn't go into great detail about it, but... Um, you know, Paul, in some of um, his other writings, we see how the resurrection is, is being called into question culturally. Um, and, you know, for some people, for, for you, know, it, you know, you can get it from the Greek side, well, bodies are bad, so, you know, good riddance. <laughs> you know, we, we want to be liberated from the body and, and become pure spirit. And, and to, so to affirm this future bodily existence is, is radical and, and also nonsense to a lot of his hearers. What else about this, this you know, why this quibbling over the resurrection? Um, as he, is, it's not just quibbling, it's a serious matter. Um, it's gangrenous. Um, never get to use that word enough. Um, that's a good question, um, I, I, and it could be a combination of both, like the quib quibbling itself um, is a, a, a symptom, but what at heart is this kind of, this, this doctrine that's upsetting the faith. And, um, and as we think about what it means, um, in verse, uh, sorry, 
my wife has already told me I'm getting new glasses this, this <laughs> summer, and they will be bifocals. Um, but God's firm, so in verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal, and then, quote, the Lord knows those who are his, and, quote, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Um, those two quotations um, are, are basically paraphrasing um, um, statements made in Numbers chapter 16, which is Korah's rebellion. So he's hearkening back to this famous rebellion within Israel where you have this party going, why should these Levites and priests be the only ones who get to go in the, to the presence of God? You know, and you know, they could be taking, building, some people have argued they're building from uh, words in Exodus 19. Well, we're all you know, a nation of kingdom of priests. Like, so we all should be able to minister in God's house. And so you have this moment in Israel's history where you have these rebellious leaders trying to lead the people to do something contrary to God's, um, God's word. And um, this wholesale destruction starts falling and, and the true followers um, even are wondering if they're going to get sucked into this kind of, again, it almost seems like the, a chasm opens in the earth and fires coming out and just sucking people in. Um, and they're worried that they're going to get sucked in too. And um, I, I think what Paul's telling uh, Timothy here is, look, you know, they, they're going to upset the faith of some, but, you know, God's firm foundation stands, bearing his seal. The Lord knows those who are his. So, yeah, they're going to lead some people astray, but they can't touch the ones who are, who are God's people. Um, they're going to uh, trouble the house. Their teaching is going to be trouble in this household of faith, um, um, but they're not going to bring the house down. Yeah, and as Paul said in that passage I read in, from, you know, 1 Corinthians, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, like, if we don't, our bodies aren't going to be raised because bodies can't be raised from the dead, then that, then was Christ's body raised? And if Christ's body wasn't raised, then what are we doing this for? <laughs> you know, there, there are other things I could be doing on a Sunday morning. Um, you know, uh, you know, you know, why am I... You know, um, restricting aspects of my lifestyle, you know, like, you know, I could be doing so much more um, to take uh, advantage of the pleasures of this earth. Um, but I, I don't because I have this hope of the power of the gospel. And, but if that's not true, then what's it for? So, yeah, it's, it's more than just sort of, um, well, you know, 
they spiritualize it. We say it's bodily. You know, that's more than just a, a quibble over words. It's like getting to a serious part of the gospel, which he just, you know, proclaimed in this trustworthy saying he gave us earlier. Like, you know, if we died with him, we're going to live with him. That's, that's a core part of our hope, and we can't, you know, trim it away um, and sort of say, well, you know, um, I mean, we, we see this a lot if, if you read, like, late 19th century, early 20th century uh, liberal theology. And, and what they're doing is they're trying, um, their motivation is to make a gospel that's more palatable to the modern empirical age, you know, the age of science, the age of technology. And, and, and these people aren't going to, you know, um, believe in unempirical thing like bodily resurrection, virgin birth, like we know that stuff scientifically can't happen. And, and you know, so um, these liberal theologians thought that was a stumbling block that was preventing them from speaking to their current age. And so, well, if that's the stumbling block, let's just remove the stumbling block. Um, and what Paul is saying here is, you know, that's not just a stumbling block, that's the core truth. <laughs> um, you know, and it is a, a, you know, a stumbling block, you know, as he talked about the gospel's a stumbling block to Jews. <laughs> it's foolishness to Greeks. Um, but that's what we're called to proclaim, you know, and, and we can't deviate or distort that message. And even though some people are going to trip over it, some people are going to think we're nuts, that's what we're called to proclaim. Other things about um, the resurrection? Um, all right, let's see. Oh, Ten minutes left. Um, all right. Um, well, let's, uh, I, I did want to spend a little on, um, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but um, it is one of those things that, um, yeah, it's a little odd. So honorable vessels, dishonorable vessels, yeah, what's exactly going on in this great house analogy that Paul's presenting here? Yeah, Lynn. Right. Much better. <laughs> and you need to separate yourself from what's, to cleanse oneself from what's dishonorable. You know, this, this idea that within this household, um, you've, you've got to, um, and again, to sort of think, uh, uh, you know, in the, the Christian community at this moment, there are Pauls and Timothys, but there are also Hymenaeuses, um, Alexander, who he mentioned in 1 Timothy, Philetus that he mentions. So Hymenaeus gets mentioned in a bad way in, verse, uh, in both 1 and 2 Timothy. You just, if you think back, 1 Timothy, he's the one who they're turning over to Satan. Um, <laughs> you know, like they're, they're literally being called to separate themselves from him. To, to, and to turn someone over to Satan means to excommunicate them. You know, that this teaching is not something that should be tolerated within the household of faith. It's got to be removed. Um, 
there's got to be this cleansing and this separation that takes place. Yeah, so what we, um, <laughs> no, because I think there is some carryover. So what we have to try to decide is what is this great house? So is this great house referring to the invisible church of true believers, or does it refer to the visible community? Because if it refers to the visible community, then absolutely the Romans 9, that because in the visible church, there are going to be, you know, um, it's, it's Christ's wheat and tares metaphor. You know, there are going to be true followers of Christ in the visible church, and there are going to be people who are, are you know, not true believers, people who will fall away, um, people who will distort the gospel message, and yet still um, profess to be um, believers and part of that visible community. Um, so if we take the, the great house that he's talking about here, um, as that visible community, then yeah, he is using the pot metaphor in a similar way that he's using in Roman 9, um, but here applying it to the church itself, you know, reminding us that within the church, um, in the Christian community writ large, there are going to be true followers of Christ, and there are going to be people that are, are using the message, as we've seen um, in, in all the pastoral epistles, using the message of Christ for their own gain, um, uh, using it for uh, you know, physical gain, using it for um, you know, material gain, um, you know, people who are you know, tools of Satan, as he says later on, you know, that, that they're, you know, there's this, um, they're being instruments of evil um, that those people are going to be part of the visible Christian community, and we need to separate what, what's honorable from what's dishonorable. Um, and part of that is going to come through, you know, notice he's going to follow this with instructions on, you know, therefore flee <laughs> your youthful passions. Um, you know, there are certain things that you've got to um, um, put out of the midst of the Christian community. Yeah, and the, what it's made of is going to um, contribute to its use. Like, you know, you're, you're not going to use the gold vessel for your uh, chamber pot and um, drink out of the, you know, the earthen vessel. <laughs> um, 
or, or maybe you would. So I just saw an article this week. Somebody's trying to have a solid gold toilet made. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> but but yeah, normally speaking, like you know the um, you know the the silver in our house is you know used sparingly and for special occasions. We don't use it every day because it's expensive. And like if you use it every day, then it's going to wear and uh, wear out. So it's like, you know, something, you know, setting apart, you know, something for honorable use from something from dishonorable use that, you know, so what it's made of. And a as we saw with this um, kind of question of last week of, you know, what's the difference between denying and being faithless? Um, and, you know, all right, Peter denied Christ three times, um, but so did so did Judas, and one gets restored and, and redeemed, and one doesn't. Um, and you know, at the heart of that is the heart. <laughs> you know, that that one um, heart was changed um, by Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ remained faithful to Peter, even when Peter was faithless to him. Whereas Judas died despondently, without hope. You know, he hung himself. Um, because he didn't have the, you know, even though they both, by their actions, denied um, Jesus Christ, you know, one doing it for selfish gain, well, both doing it for selfish gain, one doing it for 30 pieces of silver, the other doing it to save his own neck. Um, and yet, you know, so we could say they're doing the same actions, but they come to very different ends, because one, you know, had been purified by Christ, and the other had been set apart for dishonorable use. Yeah, live out. <laughs> you know, work out this great salvation, which is gets to. You know, he, he turns from this analogy of the house to these imperatives. Flee youthful desires or passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So, you know, if you are one of a pure heart, you need to be fleeing those, those youthful passions, those desires. Um, and, and one person um, I saw sort of summarize desire you know, we can kind of think of levels of desire for pleasure, um, de desire, well, you had three Ps. I think I wrote them down. Um, desire for pleasure, desire for power, or desire for possession. Um, and that can kind of sum up, <laughs> um, you know, our desires. And, you know, like, so flee those things and instead, you know, put on, um, you know, righteousness, faith, love and peace, you know, these are the things you're, you're to pursue. Um, you know, you're to demonstrate the inner change by how you love one another. Um, you know, by putting off those works of the flesh. You know, he, he, Christ hasn't died so that you can keep on sinning. You know, if you believe Christ has died and raised from the dead to give you new life, then sin is supposed to be conquered. Um, sin is supposed to be like, you know, it's still there, but it's the, you know, it's in its death throes. Like, it, it no longer has dominion over your will in the same way. Um, and therefore, you should be pursuing 
righteousness. You know, you should be demonstrating love. You should be doing things out of right motivations. Um, and so, yeah, it is this call to self, um, yes, self-inspection, um, to have this introspective, you know, all right, you know, kind of always going back to, all right, what am I doing this for? Because, again, even people who are, you know, it, it's so easy, I think, um, you know, to start off doing something for the right reasons and then forget why you're doing it. <laughs> um, you know, and that's, that's often, like, like, you know, my, my tendency is, like, I'll start off, all right, I'm doing this project for the sake of, like, you know, repairing something. Um, and then because I'm so anal retentive, like, I'll end up like on a totally different project. Meanwhile, the corner of my house is still rotting and falling apart. And I'm like, hmm, what kind of shingle should I get? You know, it, it's like, you know, I started off with the right motivation on a project, uh, to use the, the, the example. And, you know, in the course of doing the project, I can forget what the purpose of the thing was for, like to help my house stand up. And I'm worried about, hmm, what color paint? do I put on it when I'm done? Or <laughs> should I use brass nails? Or <laughs> it's like, no, use the thing that's gonna help the thing stay up. And then cosmetic stuff comes later. <laughs> but you know, it's, you know, it's this kind of constant temptation to start off on something well and for the right purpose and to, you know, where it becomes rote or in the process of doing it, we can become distracted and, and get off on some other like tangential thing. Again, big problem with, with me, like I'll start on something and then I'll get dragged into a tangent. Um, you know, or you know, we can forget and, and, you know, that we're, what we're supposed to be doing and start doing something totally different. Um, you know, all these kinds of dangers e exist and so we have to um, uh, you know, do this self-reflection and keep going back to the gospel. Um, you know, the minute I think, well, you know, I've mastered this gospel business, I can go on to something else, is the most dangerous minute in my life. <laughs> um, you know, the, the moment I think I've mastered the gospel is the moment where I've ceased to let it have mastery over me. Um, you know, I cease to think of myself as a sinner in need of a savior, and I start you know, patting myself on the back for this reason or that. Wow, we're at time. Um, but um, uh, just to sort of, uh, again, uh, at the end here, uh, in verse 24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents, with gentleness, um, even though he's not specifically doing, you know, this is what elders and overseers should look like, you know, it, this seems to be like another one of those lists. Um, and it, I think it's a good list for us to keep in mind as we go through the process of choosing a pastor, you know, that the Lord's servant, you know, the, the Lord's bond servant, the one in the Lord's employ you know, shouldn't be a quarrelsome person, but someone who's kind to everyone, someone who's able to teach patiently, um, enduring evil, uh, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Um, and even doing so, uh, that doesn't mean that um, his opponents are going to be gentle back. Um, 
So um, you know, not to be a person who's easily provoked. Um, and, and why? And again, to, to get to the purpose um, and what Hendrickson said, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You know, why should we treat the opponents of the gospel this way when they're, you know, um, treating us with abuse and disdain? Because who knows? Uh, you know, by our acting out the gospel, um, by being Christ to them, they might come to Christ. <laughs> you know, that the purpose, again, isn't to win the argument um, or, you know, to win a battle and burn the bridge that prevents the person, <laughs> like, to heap up the barriers between them and, well, I don't want to have anything to do with Christians because did you see that act, or I don't have anything to do with churches because of the way that church treated me. Um, and, you know, by, you know, focusing on a different set of ends or a, to be motivated to deal with people outside the way that we're supposed to deal with them, putting on um, uh, righteousness, faith, love, and peace, um, you know, by um, uh, not being quarrelsome but kind to everyone. You know, those heart changes should lead to external changes in how we deal with one another and how we live the gospel. Um, you know, I've never seen Jesus Christ face to face, but I have seen Jesus Christ face to face in the people who've lived out the gospel before me. Like, I haven't seen the physical single individual, but I've seen the body of Christ. Um, and, and that, as we think about evangelism, to think about it, in that way, that we are Christ to other people. Like, they should see Christ in us. And part of the way they see that is with our words, but part of it is see in our behaviors, and that these two things have to be uh, cons consistent with one another. You know, like, we can't preach a gospel of love and forgiveness and, and present it in a hateful, unforgiving manner. Um, we can't preach a Savior who has been faithful to us and patient um, and then have quick tempers and, well, I don't want to deal with you anymore because you made me mad or you said something that hurt my feelings, so I'm cutting you off. Like, you know, how we do things is important as the, the message that we present, and especially for, for gospel ministers. All right, let me close this in prayer. Gracious God, we do thank you for the hope we have of new life in Jesus Christ, that we uh, taste of that new life now. Um, and there is a sense in which the resurrection has happened uh, internally because we have been given uh, new hearts. That heart of stone has been made a heart of flesh. But um, we also have hope for our bodies, that just as you raised Jesus Christ from the dead and gave him new life, um, that we uh, have confidence that our sin has been dealt with and that we have a new life and an eternal life uh, with you uh, uh, in his glory. And we, uh, we ask that you would help us to keep focused on that truth as we present the gospel to others and as we seek a, a, a pastor to minister the gospel to us 
that we would uh, seek someone who is looking to do things for the glory of Christ, who's seeking the conversion of sinners, and who's seeking to build up your body and not to, to trouble it, um, to not uh, introduce uh, distortion or quarrels, but who seeks to, um, to unify us, uh, to, um, to be loving and kind to one another uh, as all of us uh, know uh, and taste of the love and the loving kindness of our Savior Jesus Christ uh, who gave himself for us. Um, just as uh, Christ said, um, may they know you by your love for one another. Uh, may others know you by our love for one another. Help us now uh, as we give you praise and glory in our act of worship that we do it not out of routine or habit, but we do it from a sincere desire to, um, to give you praise and glory and to be obedient um, to how you have said uh, you ought to be worshipped. Um, give us uh, your Holy Spirit, um, we pray, uh, to enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>